Emergency services only. A cyber attack behind a province-wide disruption of healthcare services in Newfoundland, Labrador. All procedures except emergency ones cancelled by the province's health authority. We may have been victims of a possible <coughs> cyber attack by a third party. This led to progressive failure of what's been described to me as the, the brain of the data center uh, and a loss of functionality in systems uh, across the regional health authorities. Also, Justin Trudeau beckons for global action in the fight against climate change and formally pledges to a cap on emissions produced by Canada's oil and gas. Create sector. a global standard around putting a price on pollution. Canada is committed to leading on this. A few years ago, uh, nobody would have even imagined that we could set a global minimum corporate tax. And suddenly we have. These are things that are the right ideas that when their time has come, people start to adopt. Trudeau may be optimistic, but also... And inflation rates show no signs of slowing down anytime soon. Bank of Canada governor says inflation may be with us longer than anticipated. And we do have inflation. It's running 4.5% now. We think it's going to go up to uh, close to 5. And then over the course of next year, we think as we get to around the end of next year, it's going to be around 2%. So that's what we mean by transitory but not short-lived. Then the Canada and United States land border is reopened. What you need to know about it when a new episode of The Rundown starts right now. to sign the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Act into law. Everyday America's adversaries are testing our cyber defenses. They attempt to gain access to our critical infrastructure, exploit our great companies, and undermine our entire way of life. And we can't let that happen. This vital legislation will establish a new agency within the Department of Homeland Security to lead the federal government's civilian response to these cyber threats against our nations. The men and women of the new cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency will be on the front lines of our cyber defense. They will partner with the private sector and all levels of government to defend America's power grids, banks, telecommunications, and other critical parts of our economy. The cyber battle space evolves, and it is evolving, and unfortunately faster than a lot of people want to talk about, but battle space it is. So as the cyber battle space evolves, this new agency will ensure that we confront the full range of threats from nation states, cyber criminals, and other malicious actors, of which there are many. Okay, I think Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Rundown. I'm Kiersey Stanford. Uh, that clip you just listened to, that was almost three years to the day. Um, on November 16th, 2018, uh, the former disgrace, twice impeached, one-term president of the U.S., Donald Trump, signed the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Act of 2018. That's what that clip was. Uh, 
This elevated the mission of the former National Protection and Programs Directorate under the Department of Homeland Security, um, establishing CISA, which is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. They did this as, he did this as an effort to aid other government agencies and private sector organizations in addressing cybersecurity issues. You may remember a man by the name of Christopher Krebs. Sound familiar? He was the top U.S. election official who spoke out in the aftermath of the 2020 election, contradicting Trump's claim that the election was stolen. He was later terminated for doing so. Um, well, Krebs was also the director of CISA. So CISA leads the effort to enhance the safety, resiliency, and reliability reliability of the United States cybersecurity and communications infrastructure. So why am I telling you all this? Well, as we both know, doctors, nurses, and hospitals on the front lines of the pandemic have endured the most stressful, painful situations battling heroically the coronavirus. Yet, simultaneously, plaguing hospitals is a cybersecurity threat that seems resilient um, resilient and more prevalent following the World Health Organization's announcement of a global pandemic last year. Cyber attackers view the global health crisis as a prime occasion to exploit hardest hit industries such as healthcare. And with so many uh, workers working remotely, these attackers have it even easier to carry out their mission. Hospitals must put life and death urgency in the highest priority, which usually results in these assailants being paid off. The healthcare industry in many countries is obviously um, lagging in cybersecurity. Clearly, inefficient digital literacy, inadequate regulations and enforcement, and outdated software result in hospitals being vulnerable targets. It was October 2020 when the University of Vermont Health network um, was hit by a ransomware attack. The health system was incapable of accessing electronic health records for nearly a month. Basically, every computer at UVM Medical Center was infected with malware. Hospitals in the network prolonged chemotherapy and mammogram appointments. And keep in mind, throughout October of last year, COVID-19 infections in the U.S. sprang upward in what would become an enormous winter wave. But it wasn't only COVID infections shooting upward. At the same time, cyber attacks were also skyrocketing in October 2020. Enough so that the U.S. CISA, FBI, and the Department of Health and Human Services issued a joint alert warning to prepare for this kind of attack. The warning read, CISA, FBI, and HHS have credible information of an increased and imminent cybercrime threat to the U.S. hospitals and healthcare providers. CISA, FBI, and HHS are sharing this information to provide warnings to healthcare providers to ensure that they take timely and reasonable precautions to protect their networks from these threats. The following day, the Washington Post reported that Hospitals were being hit in a coordinated targeted ransomware attack from Russian-speaking criminals. The attackers had shut down some procedures. The hospital was un 
able to offer computer control cancer treatments. Uh, doctors and nurses had to write by hand with paper and pen for patient records while the electronic system was offline. The Russian hackers, thought to be based in Moscow and St. Petersburg, had been trading a list of more than 400 hospitals they intended to target. 400. Now, TrickBot is a computer malware. Uh, it's a, a Trojan for Microsoft Windows and other operating systems. It was first spotted in 2016, originally designed to steal banking details and other credentials. But its operators extended its capabilities to create a complete modular malware over the years. Microsoft said in a statement on April 17th, 2020, based on Office 365 ATP data, TrickBot is the most prolific malware operation using COVID-19 theme lures. This week's campaign uses several hundreds of unique macro-lace document attachments and emails that pose as a message from a nonprofit offering free COVID-19 tests. Okay, so that was a statement that was put out by Microsoft on April 17th, 2020. Then, almost six months later, on October 12th, Microsoft announced they took action to disrupt a botnet called TrickBot, one of the world's most infamous botnets and prolific distributors of ransomware. They disrupted TrickBot through a court order which was obtained and technical action executed in coordination with telecommunication providers worldwide. However, TrickBot retaliated against Microsoft and the United States Cyber Command after learning that both of those agents, or Microsoft and the United States Cyber Command, both came after them. Now, this resulted in multiple hospital systems locking up during the third wave of an infectious viral disease. The Guardian last October, reporting it had already hobbled at least five U.S. hospitals in the week and could potentially affect hundreds more. And so why am I telling you all this? Well, almost two weeks ago in Newfoundland, Labrador, um, the most eastern province in Canada, uh, the province's four health authorities were infiltrated by hackers who penetrated the computer system resulting in thousands of appointments and procedures being postponed across the province. <clears throat> At this stage of our investigations, we can confirm that we have been the victims of a cyber attack which has impacted our healthcare systems. We have, as I mentioned on other occasions, engaged cyber security experts to help us investigate and resolve the matter. We've also uh, informed the appropriate authorities those investigations are ongoing. So we understand there's been a lot of interest in this matter, but it is under investigation at this time. Those involved in the attack may actually be monitoring what we are saying in media and on the floor of the House. It's very important, therefore, we don't do or say anything 
that compromises the efforts underway to investigate and resolve this matter. To manage the outage, we activated our Provincial Emergency Operations Centre uh, and each of the regional health authorities is in a code grey situation, which means effectively they've done the same. We have technical, operational and communications teams working with the RHAs to keep Newfoundlanders and Labradorians updated about the systems that are impacted. Through our continued investigations, we've confirmed there were system impacts, uh, after all, in Western, and out of an abundance of caution, we've had to take the Western Health system offline. The way. range of impact is far-reaching. No patients could be registered and the entire email system shut down. The disruption meant chemotherapy at several hospitals was postponed and many uh, procedures and appointments rescheduled. The brunt of the impact coming from Eastern Health. It also affected people's ability to check uh, their coronavirus test results online. Um, hospitals were willed with using pen and paper to get by. This malicious attack comes on the heels of two occurrences the week before when a ransomware attack on the TTC uh, shut down vital communication systems and a reported attack um, on this on the city of Clarence Rockland, Ontario. The city shut down its email service as a precautionary measure. It is a cyber attack and we're still looking into it. Thursday night, the TTC's IT services noticed some unusual activity and this broadened to a larger uh, network issue on Friday afternoon. And we are continuing to look into what is happening and examine the situation. But it has uh, it has impacted uh, the TTC's uh, internal communication systems. So system is down but our operators are using our backup radio system which is uh, it's a bit old school but it is uh, it is not connected to the network so we are not uh, we are not concerned about it at this time right now IT is still looking into exactly what this means and we will make sure to communicate with customers is this preparation for more giant attack like a practice run to shut down an entire country's health authorities operating system these strikes are glaring attacks on our national security. Certainly not white collar crimes because they threaten life and they directly endanger hospitals cap uh, capability to provide patient care. Hospitals have to put life and death urgency in the highest priority. So this usually results in attackers being paid off quickly. Their missions and paper trails covered up for demands of payment to be issued in cryptocurrency. In May of this year, Scripps IT team discovered unusual network activity on their systems. Federal law enforcement was notified and forensic firms were rapidly employed to facilitate and expedite uh, the recovery and investigation process. The attack led to significant inf interference in patient care and forced providers to use paper records. It took weeks for Scripps Health to get its computer network and medical record systems back online. The hackers didn't just 
disrupt operations. They also stole data on close to 150,000 patients. Some have filed several class action lawsuits claiming Scripps Health was negligent in its failure to protect patient data from breaches. Doctors, nurses, and hospitals on the front lines of the pandemic have been dealing with the most challenging circumstances, battling heroically COVID-19. Expanded efforts need to be established in place to forecast and anticipate dangers instead of discovering and reacting once they've occurred. This pandemic has presented cyber attackers with prime opportunities to gain advantage and exploit industries hardest hit, such as healthcare, governments, and educational institutions. Amidst so many people working remotely, these attackers have it even easier to carry out their malicious attacks. Ransomware attacks on hospitals don't just have a financial impact, but a human detriment as well. It's not only a white-collar economic crime. These crimes are a direct threat to public health and safety. The vast majority of cyber criminals are operating from adversarial nation-states. They should be aggressively pursued and prosecuted. The, uh, the most popular tactics hackers use to carry out ransomware attacks are email phishing campaigns, um, remote desktop um, RDP uh, vulnerabilities, and software vulnerabilities, according to CISA. In September 2020, Universal Health Services, one of um, the largest healthcare providers in the United States, was hit by a ransomware attack that wiped out all of its IT systems. The attack uh, locked up computers and phone systems throughout UHS facilities across the United States, restoring its IT Infrastructure resulted in a significant uptick in labor costs, both internally and externally. UHS reported total pre-tax losses of an estimated $67 million in 2020 due to the ransomware attack, mainly due to operating income loss. So, is this the groundwork um, for a more powerful, coordinated attack? I can't help but wonder if this is all uh, a training exercise to hijack an entire nation's healthcare operating system. These are blatant attacks that undermine our national security. Most cyber attacks on healthcare facilities today are not carried out by um, domestic individual hackers. In Canada and the United States, the vast majority of which are actually operating from the safe haven of adversarial nation-states, and any threat to public health and safety is a threat to either country's national security. The Russian military is deemed accountable for developing the Napetya ransomware virus, which exposed several health systems and was deliberately designed without the capability of being decrypted. Ryuk, or RYUK is an ongoing, well-known ransomware gang that operates in Russia, um, equipped with events technology that uses social in, um, 
engineering to access networks. This group targets very specific businesses and government entities. SamSam ransomware was first observed in 2016 and has since undergone upgrades that still circulate today. These cyber attacks are deployed by an organization called Phosphorus. It's um, believed they conducted a spear of phishing attacks and use a wide array of personal data information from the person they target. Phishing is a form of cyber attack that attempts to trick its victims into sharing essential and sensitive information with aims to cripple a company quickly forcing them to pay a large ransom amount. November 2018, the United States Department of Justice returned an indictment unsealed in Newark, New Jersey, charging two men from Iran in a 34-month-long international computer hacking and extortion scheme involving the deployment of sophisticated ransomware. The six-count indictment alleges the two men acting from inside Iran issued malware, also known as SamSam ransomware, capable of forcibly encrypting data on victims' computers. There were more than 200 victims, including hospitals, municipalities, and public institutions. According to the indictment, these included the city of Atlanta, Georgia, um, the city of Newark, New Jersey, the port of uh, San Diego, California, the Colorado Department of Justice, the University of Calgary, Alberta, and the Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital in Los Angeles, to name a few. As a result, the attackers have collected over $6 million um, dollars of ransom payments to, to date and produced over $30 million in losses of victims. Hospital efforts solely are not enough to reshape the geopolitical capabilities that lead to many cyber attacks. Cyber attacks on the healthcare sector are undeviatingly influenced by the geopolitical climate. Hackers uh, targeting the healthcare system and exploiting the pandemic um, steal hospital uh, private data while blocking access to all information, including health records and patient charts and becoming more prominent. And those behind the attacks are becoming more sophisticated in their efforts. The damage can be calamitous. The U.S., Government advises companies not to pay the ransom, and in some cases, doing so can actually be illegal. Still, hospitals that need this data to provide patient care can be a matter of life and death. So hospitals, for the most part, do pay these ransoms in droves um, as hackers are making millions of dollars. A new report sponsored by Cybersecurity Cincinnati reveals an increasing pile of data determines that cyber attacks are not only causing financial or logistical predicaments, but could also pose substantial health risks. The analysis directed by a research institute called the Ponemon Institute collected 
survey responses from nearly 600 healthcare organizations across the U.S., uh, ranging from regional health systems to medical device manufacturers. Just over 40% said they had a ransomware attack in the last two years. Those attacks disrupted the facility's ability to care for patients. Around 70% said those disruptions led to more extended hospital stays for patients and prolonged tests or procedures. In addition, 36% said they lost um, or they saw more complications from medical procedures and 22% said they had increased death rates. So, how transparent can the government be after a cyber attack occurs? I can respect the hesitancy to not say a lot, uh, a lot as it's obviously unfolding investigation by law enforcement. Although, at the same time, I do think more clarity from um, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador is required to reassure the public that personal health information is being guarded. Here is Deputy Premier and Minister of Finance Siobhan Cody repeatedly refusing to confirm a cyber attack had taken place at all, despite the fact the media knowing government uh, brought in cybersecurity experts while the RCMP opened an investigation. Just take a look. Listen. Why is it a problem to confirm or deny whether a cyber attack has taken place? This is still unfolding and we're working with the RCMP. But why can't you say whether... This is still unfolding and we're working with the RCMP. So I'm, I'm saying to you that we're working very diligently with all the expertise that is required. This has happened in other jurisdictions. We're, we're, we're following the protocols and requirements to bring operations back. We're very focused on patients, on the healthcare systems, and the requirements of same. But one of the very basic questions that the opposition asked today, which you didn't answer, was has a ransom demand been made? We are working with the proper authorities and working with the experts that, that are required. As the uh, Attorney General has pointed out, the RCMP have been engaged and they are working through this, this issue. But that's a yes or no question and I didn't get That a is yes not or no a yes or no question. This is a security question. And I'm telling you that we are working with the proper authorities and moving through this particular challenge, as has been, as has happened in other jurisdictions, and we're very focused on the operations of the of the requirements of the healthcare system because of this. But why won't you answer that question? This is a security issue. We have engaged the proper authorities. Minister, you just said that this has happened in other jurisdictions. What has happened in other jurisdictions? They have had other security challenges, and they, and that's why we've brought in the RCMP. We've had uh, challenges with our healthcare uh, systems, as you know, and that's why we're very operationally. And the, I think the Minister of Health and Community Service has been very uh, direct in, in in telling people what what has occurred what they're doing about it. And that's what's really critical here. How do we ensure that we restore our services as quickly as we possibly can? We're working with our service provider, uh, Bell, on this matter. We're working with, we've brought in expertise that is required as well. With regard to Bell, have they indicated to you that anyone else has been a victim as the government has? Not that I'm aware, uh, They are, but they are working very quickly and very um, Directly Another with trying issue to is here. Sarah Studley, the Digital Government and Service NL Minister, uh, would not tell when the last time an outside audit of government IT infrastructure was last conducted. She would not say how much the government has spent on cybersecurity in the past five years.
The healthcare system in Newfoundland, it's it's been precarious to say the least. Uh, long before COVID hit the island last year, and given the number of Canadian hospitals that have been under siege from unrelenting uh, cyber criminals over the years, it brings to mind just how far Canada's newly elected government um, will go to ensure national cybersecurity standards will be strengthened and funded from the federal purse to deal with the issue. Doctors and nurses have to cope with these growing threats on patient information and other data. It hinders our health and security. It's a growing problem in North America. Meanwhile, the coordination of various agencies across um, the Biden administration amounted to conceivably the most high-profile response to date to an onslaught of ransomware intrusions that officials say remains a threat to national security and the economy. Yaroslav Vysinski was arrested last month, according to the United States uh, Justice Department, um, which also declared the recovery of $6.1 million uh, in funds from a Russian national who was charged separately uh, and remained sought by the FBI. Both men are alleged to be affiliated with the prolific Russia-based Reval ransomware whose attacks have compromised tens of thousands of computers worldwide. According to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, this has yielded at least $200 million in extorted ransom payments. The indictment accuses Vysinski of deploying rival ransomware against victims around the world. Yevgeny Polyan a Russian national is charged in a separate indictment that accuses him of administering approximately 3,000 ransomware attacks on businesses and other government entities throughout the United States, including law enforcement agencies and local governments in the state of Texas. In the meantime, back in Newfoundland, an update on the provincial health cyber attack, CEO of Eastern Health, uh, the province's largest health authority, um, David Diamond says anyone who has been an Eastern Health employee over the last 14 years should assume their data has been stolen. Hackers obtained access to the information through the province's Meditech system. The provincial premier, Dr. Andrew Fury, returned from COP26 and spoke at a press conference where he had this to say. As Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, I want to assure you that all steps are being taken to protect our systems and get them back up and running to provide the services that we so desperately need. This is an evolving situation, changing by the minute, not even by the hour. Through the course of the investigation thus far, it has been determined that some personal information and personal health information has been accessed. I know that that sounds alarming and frightening. We do know that there is no indication that the personal information or personal health information has been misused. There's no indication that banking information has been accessed. 
the appropriate authorities have been contacted and are on the case. High caliber, high caliber experts are working around the clock and we have the support of our federal ministers and agencies like the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity. Policymakers are going to need to pay more attention to the potential cyber risks in healthcare, energy, and transport industries. The WannaCry ransomware attack, which took down the United Kingdom's National Health Service in 2017, should have served as a wake-up call. I'm hoping Newfoundland Labrador uh, is the canary in the coal mine for the rest of Canada. To that, governments throughout the world should be more proactive in investments in cybersecurity. Perhaps the sharp uptick in ransomware attacks across the globe during the pandemic will now serve as a fresh reminder of just how critical it is for our healthcare infrastructure to be resilient in times of crisis. We'll be right back. Got a comment, suggestion, or complaint? We invite you to contribute to the discussion. Email the rundown at kiersystanford.ca or like the rundown with Kiersey Stanford Facebook page. Or don't. And what a strong carbon price does uh, when it's properly designed is actually drive those price signals to the private sector, transform the economy, and uh, support citizens in encouraging them to make better choices. In Canada, uh, we have a price on pollution that's going to rise to $170 a ton uh, by uh, 2030, which makes it among uh, the strongest in the world, and at the same time, one of the most stringent in the world, uh, covering about 75% of our emissions. Uh, those are two metrics that we need to start looking at around the world, but the reality is there are many different ways of putting a price on pollution uh, in different uh, different sectors. In Canada, we know from one province to the other, there have been different approaches. And what matters is to establish a principle of stringency uh, and uh, equity that makes sure that everyone is pricing at the same level. And that's why one of the things I think we all know needs to come out of COP is a clearer call uh, to create a global standard around putting a price on pollution. Not only will that encourage innovation, give that clear price signal uh, to the private sector uh, that making the right capital investments to transform to lower emissions makes sense, but it also ensures that those who are leading on pricing pollution don't get unfairly penalized. We've had to bring in particular mechanisms to make sure that we're not un, uh, unfairly penalizing particularly trade-exposed industries, but we'd love to not have to do that. Uh, and the more countries come on board with carbon pricing, uh, the more we make sure that everyone around the world gets to do their part and push things in the it right can direction. It's easy to forget because of the pandemic, but we face another global crisis, climate change. While campaigning in the 2015 federal election, Justin Trudeau, the Liberal Party of Canada, um, they presented specific commitments to address climate change. Both Trudeau and Catherine McKenna, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, received global recognition and media attention for Canada's positive role at the Paris Climate Summit. It was a renewed sense of hope for climate activists after Canada's near-decade rule of Conservative leadership. But at COP26, is this 
just another moment where Trudeau says everything right, but lacks the political will to implement change. March 3rd, 2016, the Trudeau government and provincial premiers convened a first minister's meeting in Vancouver, British Columbia. All parties accepted a climate change framework that included an agreement in principle for, for a carbon pricing mechanism. Trudeau, then President uh, Barack Obama, and Mexican, uh, Mexico President uh, Enrique Pina Nieto issued an announcement on North American Climate, Clean Energy, and Environmental Partnership. The three leaders, also dubbed uh, Three Amigos, um, they declared a historic goal for North America to achieve 50% clean power energy uh, generation by 2025. Accomplished through clean energy development and deployment, clean energy innovation, and energy efficiency. The Trudeau government has not yet delivered the election pledge to phase out oil and gas subsidies. To be honest, their strategy has been lackadaisical, to say the least. The climate crisis, it underpins everything and presents unprecedented challenges that result in a wide range of direct and indirect costs with various economic and social implications. Six years later, significant gaps remain in our preparedness for climate change. Um, ecologists warn that access to fresh water it will soon become Canada's worst environmental crisis without substantial new investment and a national approach to water quality. Significant Public and private investments are also needed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, improve energy efficiency, and cut back the release of waste into the environment. With leadership from the federal government, Canadians can certainly have environmental and economic security. COP26 is the United Nations 2021 Climate Change Conference. The conference, which is held at uh, the SEC Centre in Glasgow, Scotland, between October 31st and November 12th. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau pushed all countries to confirm to a global price on carbon. A pr proposition, he says, will dramatically curb the use of fossil fuels and level the playing field for countries like Canada that already impose a levy on emissions. Canada's federal uh, carbon tax regime is a tax levied on fuels like gas, light fuel oil for home heating, natural gas, and propane, where most of the money is collected and rebated at tax time. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said this could serve as a model for uh, for other countries uh, contemplating more aggressive climate action through a price regimen. This is something we've said a number of times uh, and people have remarked upon here at, at COP that we're not just saying we need to move forward as a world, we ought to do things. Canada is showing that we are doing things. Uh, we're making big decisions at home and encouraging people around the world to do more as well. Because climate change doesn't recognize borders. 
At COP, I've spoken to dozens and dozens of leaders, driving ambition, deepening cooperation. Today, with partners like the IMF, World Bank, and the World Trade Organization, we're calling to bringing in carbon pricing to triple it on emissions up from about 21% of emissions covered by a price on pollution around the world to get to 60% covered by a price on pollution by Canada's Prime Minister accompanied more than 100 other nations at the COP26 climate summit in agreeing to end and reverse deforestation by 2030, backed by $19 billion in funds from countries and some private companies. The pledge was signed by leaders of countries like the UK, US, Canada, Brazil, Indonesia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, which collectively account for 85% of the world's forests. The nearly $20 billion in combined funding will go towards stopping and reversing deforestation and land uh, degradation um, while promoting sustainable commodity production and consumption. Another $1.5 billion in funding was also announced to help protect the Congo Basin, home to the second largest tropical rainforest in the world. Forests matter to me because Canada is the third most forested country in the world. La nature fait partie de notre identité. Canada is working to protect 30% of our lands and oceans by 2030. We're planting 2 billion trees. We're protecting and restoring wetlands, grasslands, and peatlands. And we're supporting indigenous-led conservation and guardian programs. Ensemble, luttons contre les changements climatiques et la crise de la nature. To be realistic about the challenges we face. And the only one who I think was on the right track at COP26 was Greta. Take a listen. There is no planet B. There is no planet blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. This is not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging or blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero, blah, blah, blah. Climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. Our hopes and dreams drown in their empty words and promises. Of course, we need constructive dialogue, but they've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? Over 50% of all our CO2 emissions have occurred since 1990, and a third since 2005. If this is what they consider to be climate action, then we don't want it. They invite cherry-picked young people to meetings like this to pretend that they are listening to us, but they are not. They are clearly not listening to us, and they never have. Just look at the numbers. Look at the statistics. The emissions are still rising. The science doesn't lie. Trudeau and liberals, they talk a great game, but they are only blowing smoke. Let's put the political platitudes aside and discuss a few issues with Justin's pledges. The intertwined hurdles of climate change social inequality, economic volatility, degraded natural systems, and the skyrocketing cost of living, they demand an integrated response that stretches far beyond cutting carbon.
This tax regime uh, basically makes it more costly for producers of goods and services to emit greenhouse gases that contribute to global warming. Those taxes cover emissions of all gases adding to climate change, like methane and nitrous oxide, but they center heavily on carbon dioxide. This tax, it's not a new idea. Some advanced and emerging market economies already have used some form of a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade emission system, but they do so inadequately compared to the scale that this crisis warrants. British Columbia is one of four provinces that laid the groundwork for the Trudeau government's decentralized plan for carbon pricing. BC's carbon tax, adopted in 2008, was lauded internationally as a textbook, textbook model of carbon taxation. The province's balanced coverage of fossil fuel consumption by households and industrial sources was different from similar carbon taxes imposed in other countries that exempted politically influential industries. The schedule of tax increases was gradual and predictable as advised by policy experts. All revenues generated from the tax were to be returned in two ways, through low-income dividends to avoid regressivity and reductions in individual and corporate income tax to deliver spillover economic benefits. The BC carbon tax, it gives several lessons, uh, both good and bad. An increasing body of research has determined that the BC carbon tax reduced consumption of gas and residential natural gas and overall emissions. It provoked a greater uptake of fuel-efficient vehicles without the sacrifice of jobs or infliction to low-income households. While British Columbia's emissions are lower than they would produce without the carbon tax, the point that they have just barely leveled off underlines either a high carbon price or more bold actions are required to accomplish complete reductions in emissions. I'm not stating that a carbon price is punitive, still. If the tax is only levied on consumers and not to producers who we know have profited from unfettered pollution, then yes, it's punitory in my opinion. The OECD said... The principal appeal of using prices to induce carbon abatement is that it encourages emission reductions where they are cheapest. And cutting greenhouse gas emissions, it will not happen in rapid cooling. It will take decades for today's policy demands to appear in measurable impacts on global temperature. Carbon dioxide is not the exclusive driver of climate change. About a quarter of all global greenhouse gas emissions emanate from growing food. Agricultural production includes changes in the hydrologic um, cycle, introducing toxic chemicals from nitrogen fertilizers and pesticides, reducing and changing wildlife habitats, and land clearing, discharging carbon dioxide stored in the land and trees. These problems affect the quality of soil, air, and water, which impact our planet's biodiversity. It can affect the Earth's capability to absorb or reflect light, and temperature can change drastically. These environmental repercussions of agriculture are the result of various farming methods, even though livestock is responsible for a large portion of global greenhouse gas emissions, most notably methane. 
Methane is a potent greenhouse gas. Over 20 years, it has been 80 times more powerful at warming than carbon dioxide. It has accounted for roughly 30% of global warming since pre-industrial times. According to data from the United States National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, even as carbon dioxide emissions decelerated during the pandemic, um, atmospheric methane, it shot up. So we do need to rethink our methods of agricultural farming and livestock production. Regenerative agriculture, it centers on the health of the ecological system as a whole, not solely on the high production yield of crops. It focuses on topsoil regeneration, boosting biodiversity, improving the water cycle, and enhancing ecosystem services, assisting to biosequestration. The warming climate, it's already creating challenging uh, efforts to grow food in some parts of the world. Climate models prognosticate more severe disruption to global agricultural uh, a few decades into the future to changing rainfall and extreme weather. However, like I said, there are solutions for decreasing greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. The most significant move would be to use less land to grow food, regenerating cropland to permanent grassland, or forests that can capture carbon dioxide from the air. That could be achieved by raising productivity on existing land, consuming less meat, and diminishing biofuels like corn ethanol. A regenerative carbon-negative agriculture transition, it's certainly conceivable. And okay, yes, deforestation, it's a problem because it exacerbates climate change by hindering the capability of the planet to balance how much carbon is in the atmosphere. It's a short-term economic gain that profits few at the expense of the many. But I'm reluctant to take these leaders at the word, particularly Brazil's leader, Jair Bolsonaro. Like, what the fuck? Come on. Brazil in 2020 had the highest rate of deforestation in 12 years. We're supposed to simply believe that Bolsonaro abruptly has a change of heart? <laughs> okay. The ruralistas, they make up a, um, an influential right-wing congressional bloc that represents the agricultural industry in Brazil, including farmers and ranchers. They have pushed former Brazilian president Dilma Rousseff to relax the forest code, which empowered landowners to get away with clearing more land. In 2016, they legislated a slipshod law that made it more per, uh, permissive for somebody who illegally seizes land to keep it. This, however, emboldened some people to seize and clear the Amazon rainforest again and again and again and again, driving the rise in deforestation rates. In 2018, while on the campaign trail, Jair Bolsonaro stated that he would absorb the Ministry of Environment into the Ministry of Agriculture and end environmental activism. No doubt gaining the support of the ruralists, uh, they control 44% of Congress at this time, and on his second day in office, he fulfilled that campaign promise, and systematically weakened the environmental ministry. Under Bolsonaro, deforestation it intensified in 2019. Over 30,000 fires were burning in the Amazon, three times as many as in 2018. 
Many were set illegally by ranchers, farmers, and landowners who were emboldened by the government's new attitude on the Amazon. In the last 50 years, it is estimated that about 17% of the Amazon has been deforested. In fact, a 2018 report estimated that if it reaches between 20 and 50%, the whole rainforest could start to collapse. That rainforest is the Earth's lungs. It wouldn't be sufficient to cycle all the water it requires, causing trees to die. That would release a massive amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Moreover, warming the planet, clearing the Amazon for short-term profits, it disregards the fact that the Earth, as we know, wouldn't exist without that rainforest. So, excuse me if I'm doubtful that Bolsonaro will abruptly heed uh, the science and put people ahead of profit. Let's not forget that money is power. And as Brazil has demonstrated, extractive industries like the, agricult like the agricultural sector um, or the oil and gas sector, they use their financial muscles to influence political methods to slow down decarbonization and ramp up deforestation efforts. The oil and gas industry is completely jacked up on subsidies. Those that offshore some of their profits to tax havens are afforded extraordinary financial gains. The federal system, it should be reformed so taxes are reduced on sustainable activities especially those requiring more significant investment in labor and raise taxes on non-sustainable ventures. We could revitalize the labor movement while reducing destructive fossil fuels and guaranteeing uh, polluters pay their environmental bills. Climate change is a wealth inequality problem. If 1% of the global population has emitted as much as the poorest 50%, this societal imbalance it re results from capitalist greed. We are hurtling toward the edge of immutable climate disaster. If we dismiss, overlook, or p postpone this crisis any longer, it will be catastrophic and inhumane. That said, the foundation of any policy carried forward to undertake the climate crisis, it should, be, it should include innovative job creation. We, we can generate more sustainable green jobs by tendering meaningful, bold investments into environmental innovation and renewables. In this era of innovation and technological breakthroughs, there is so much untapped potential. Not every worker in the fossil fuel industry is going to be able to ease into a clean and uh, energy job. So governments need to promote training and devote resources to facilitate new opportunities. Members of the G20 are spending 50% more on their stimulus and rescue packages to fossil fuel production and consumption than on low carbon energy. Canada already has the weakest corporate transparency rules in the G20. The IMF estimates that OECD countries lose on average 1% of their GDP to international corporate tax shifting. Tax improvements alter the rules in a market economy. Some can incentivize pro-social economic liveliness and decentivize unsustainable activities. 
it's time to remove the subsidies from negative environmental, social, and economic activities and provide incentives, including tax credits for positive ones. Effective tax policy, it's not about lowering rates. It's about closing loopholes. We don't need political platitudes. We need accelerated investment and deployment of breakthrough technologies, not these incremental developments, not for the sector to reduce its absolute carbon emissions in line with climate commitments. Aviation alone counts for 2.5% of all global carbon emissions. How is it that that will be reduced? That's what I'm saying. We need bold, innovative ideas and commitments towards a sustainable green economy. We need more than a carbon tax. We need action today to protect tomorrow. If the world has to be net zero by 2050, that means that countries need to be countries like Canada and the United States, they need to be net zero by 2030. Clearly, COP26 has missed the mark. We know higher prices are challenging Canadians and making it harder for them to cover their bills. I want to assure you that inflation is not going to stay as high as it is today, even if it's going to take somewhat longer. While the world recovers from the coronavirus, economies are hotter than predicted. Amidst growth has arisen change. Inflation throughout the world cruising to its highest levels. Can't say we didn't see it coming. But those razor-sharp increments blindsided many economists. I'm referring to the rate of inflation, both in Canada and the USA. In its simplest terms, inflation is when price... Prices rise over time. Items and services, they cost more than they used to. Inflation has been the most irregular and unpredictable, more than it has in decades. Keeping the boom in prices, it's a balancing act. As is making ends meet for families in North America. Whether it's at the pump or stocking the cupboards, consumers are feeling the pinch. And it hurts. Most central banks, they aim for costs to grow about 2% a year. At this level, customers don't notice variations in prices too often. But if it rises higher, it enhances problematic risks. Canada is currently grappling with inflation, operating at 4.5%. The Bank of Canada predicts that this will increase to 5% before falling to 2% by the end of 2022. The governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Mecklem, said to CTV, and I quote, I do want to assure Canadians that we are going to keep inflation under control. We know what our job is. Our job is to make sure the increases we're seeing today don't turn into generalized and enduring inflation in Canada, end quote. The pandemic has turned inflation on its head prompting consumers to ask, in the era of the moderate increase in prices, is it over? Central bankers insist that inflation will sizzle out, therefore there's no need to worry. But predictions are not consistently accurate. Some think inflation hasn't really risen that much. It just looks higher, distinctive of the dip in prices during 2020. For example, 
The cost of crude oil in September 2021 was $17 on the barrel. Compared to September 2020, when, per, when prices were recovering from a collapse, the price rose by 74%. But if we analyze it to September 2019, it's only a 13% increase. Regardless, those factors do not inspire consumer confidence. Supply chains have been hugely interrupted by the pandemic, and the heightened demand is only driving the prices further. The increased demand is in part because of the enormous government stimulus policies. America, for instance, emptied $1.9 trillion into a COVID relief package. Now, some people are worrying about hyperinflation, which uh, basically is inflation sorry, is hyperinflation so severe that it can derail economies and recurrencies with more than 50% per month increments. Yet economists say we are nowhere near seeing a massive supply-induced price distortion that results in that level of hyperinflation. So, will the prices go down after the holidays? I'm skeptical. It seems like everything is more expensive these days. Look at the expense of gasoline. It has skyrocketed about 50% in 2021, surpassing pre-pandemic levels. The cost of gas is a linear force on even the most essential commodities, including food. Economists say higher oil prices, the supply chain backups, and consumer demand it will all settle down after the holidays. It will fizzle out that this is only transitory. However, they also warn it could get worse before it gets better. So, as it stands, we can all presume to see a very hot inflationary continuance. The pandemic formulated massive, widespread supply shortages, with everyone now appearing out of COVID hibernation and businesses reopening. I guess we can anticipate supply shortages and consumer demand soaring for another year. In view of the continued excess capacity in the economy, my fellow, fellow governing council members and I judge that the economy still needs considerable monetary policy support. While we ended QE, we kept our policy interest rate at its lowest level and reaffirmed our commitment to keep it there until slack is absorbed so that the 2% inflation target is sustainably achieved. Based on our current projection, this happens sometime in the middle quarters of 2022. Well, after a year and a half, Canadians can now drive to the United States. The U.S. has opened its land border to fully vaccinated Canadians. Since March 2020, the border has remained closed to non-essential travel. But now snowboards can flock to the south, family and friends can visit each other, shoppers can hit the road, and those who feel lucky can visit Vegas. That's right, if you're vaxxed, welcome back. You have to be fully vaccinated and show proof. Except the Canadians include... Uh, Accepted vaccinations, sorry, include Moderna, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca. Also, the rules to get into Canada are still in place. You do need to be fully vaccinated and show proof of a negative PCR test that was taken no more than 72 hours in advance. That molecular testing provision for travelers in Canada can cost upwards to $200. A significant expense for families. Some say... Those tests have shortcomings, especially for shorter trips. 
However, the public safety minister says the government is relying on the advice of public health officials. If that advice changes, the government will accept that. When there's adequate vaccination coverage in Canada, the hope is that the PCR tests will no longer uh, be required when driving into Canada. All right, well, that's it for me, everyone. Thanks for, for listening, and so it goes. That's the rundown.